So to Benji and Lydia, why should I be hopeful? Can your generation make this a priority, make climate change a priority? And can we find common ground amongst conservatives and liberals to solve this together? The general consensus is that the left cares more about this issue than the right. And I think that I can dispel that notion, which I think provides hope for the future and that both sides of young people are invested in this issue. We don't believe in having permanent friends or permanent enemies, if you will. Um, so we are a nonpartisan organization and we have a set of principles that we organize. By. Um, and if you are um, kind of adhe adhering to those principles and acting in alignment with those principles, uh, we'll work with you. House Republicans, save for just a few, have rejected the concept of a carbon tax. One House Republican has introduced legislation he hopes will change that sentiment. Meanwhile, a strong majority of millennials from across the political spectrum say they want action to combat climate change. Hello and welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. I'm your host, Julia Piper, senior editor at Green Tech Media, and we've got an episode today that I'm really excited about because we're going to hear from my peers, the Millennials, a group on the cusp of becoming America's largest generation, and we're going to hear about their views on addressing climate change and advancing clean energy policy. We'll be joined a little later on in the show by Benji Bakker, a founder and president of the American Conservation Coalition, a forum for conservatives to engage on environment and conservation issues and Lydia Avila, executive director at the Power Shift Network, a group that mobilizes collective action of young people to mitigate climate change. But first, we're going to kick it all off with the latest news. Representative Carlos Corbello's carbon tax bill and a resolution denouncing the idea of a carbon tax entirely. And this is when I need to introduce our co-hosts. We have Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners, and a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu, and Shane Skelton, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific, and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. Shane, you are like me, a millennial, uh, although... You were saying earlier you reject that I, definition. I reject it, not only because if you Google it, there's like a lot of different definitions, and I'm in the early part of the 80s, but also, you know, as I was telling uh, our intern, Chloe, who's very clearly a millennial, we had dial-up internet. Like, if my mom picked up the phone, my whole internet shut down. I don't think what I consider millennials grew up with that. They had phones that you could, like, email on and I stuff like that. I consider myself a millennial, and I remember dial-up. You were on the internet, and then you were off the internet. I've been on the internet since, like... 2006 now. <laughs> Julia just had a birthday. She's now in her 30s. Oh, yeah. Now I'm solidly in my 30s. I was already in them. Now we're just like, we're really there. We're, I'm present. <laughs> I mean, do you remember the Zach Morris phone, Julia? Because that's what I dealt with in high school. I do. Getting back up to the present day, we have this carbon tax to discuss. So Republican Representative Carlos Corbello, a member of the House Tax Committee who faces a tough re-election bid in Florida this year, has introduced a bill that calls for taxing carbon emissions. His proposal would reportedly exceed the carbon tax reduction goals laid out in the Paris Climate Accord by imposing a $24 per ton levy on industrial carbon dioxide emissions, which would begin in 2020 and then rise annually after that. This would replace existing taxes on gasoline and aviation fuel. Corbello said the tax would generate somewhere around $700 billion in revenue over a decade that could be invested in U.S. infrastructure. The bill would also impose a moratorium on U.S. regulations governing greenhouse gas emissions. Corbello represents a swing district in Florida where residents are already feeling the effects of sea level rise, one of the most prominent impacts of climate change. 
He said this week he hopes his legislation will at the very least renew a debate in the U.S. on climate change, which has basically languished for a decade. As many of our listeners will recall, a cap-and-trade bill was passed in the House in the summer of 2009, but then it died in the Senate a year later. Curbelo has taken action on climate change by co-founding the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus two years ago. It's a group within the U.S. House that's committed to exploring policy options to addressing climate change. But as a lot of people would argue, the group has done virtually nothing. Just days before Curbelo unveiled his bill, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives voted to approve a resolution expressing the view that, quote, a carbon tax would be detrimental to the United States economy. 39 Republican members of the Climate Solutions Caucus voted in favor of that resolution. Only six Republicans, four of them caucus members, joined with Democrats in opposing the resolution. And that's elicited some pretty strong reactions from people in the environmental community, including R.L. Miller, who we had on our show before. She's political director of Climate Hawks Vote, and she has called for the Climate Solutions Caucus to disband. She said climate is changing far faster than Republican attitudes. That's why we do not hold faith in bipartisan solutions. Others have praised Curbelo for trying to step up and take some form of action here. Brandon, what do you make of all this? These two competing movements in the House. You have Curbelo attempting to do something in a bill that's unlikely to go very far, but is putting climate change, you know, on the radar. And then, of course, so many Republicans in the House saying in this symbolic vote that they don't want to see a carbon tax at all. I'm heartened that Congressman Curbelo introduced this legislation. The fact that a Republican introduced some legislation on climate change uh, and a carbon tax as a conversation starter, um, I think is is great. But I'm not swooning over the fact that six or seven Republicans, you know, voted against the resolution uh, on the carbon tax. We have set such a low bar for Republicans on this issue. It's like if a Republican acknowledges that climate change is happening, you know, like we're supposed to swoon over that. I don't think so. We are still the only country in the world having this debate. Uh, and it's frustrating. And and today, alongside Congressman Crubello's event, you know, introducing this legislation, there's a big Republican event talking about how that legislation will, you know, kill a bunch of jobs in the United States. And we've heard this before from Republicans. They, they make this claim, and I feel like they don't have any credibility on it. They said when Obama had, you know, Obamacare was going to crush the economy. That didn't happen. He said Obama's regulations at the EPA and what we were doing at the Department of Energy was going to kill jobs and raise electricity prices. That did not happen. We created jobs. So I, I'm waiting for the Republicans to get serious on this issue, and I'm still waiting. Well, what's interesting is that this resolution, which, again, was symbolic and non-binding, but it says sort of what the views are of the Congress. And, of course, Republicans hold a majority in the House right now. And their view is, again, that carbon tax is not good for America. But a slight increase of Republicans voted against the resolution and so saying that they are open to a carbon tax versus the previous time they had this symbolic vote in which no Republicans said they'd be open to a carbon tax. So is this progress, perhaps? Shane, what do you think? I mean, I don't know if we can call this vote progress, and I'm not counting votes. I think, you know, for me, it's that I, I think that the fact that the vote was held was a little bit problematic. I don't know why you would get into any sort of policy situation where you want to be, you know, an sort of honest participant in a policy debate and try to find solutions, and you would take one potential solution off the table. So I'm not making the point that Republicans should be for a carbon tax at all. I'm sort of making the point that in order to have 
a constructive dialogue on how to pursue climate policy in any way, shape or form moving forward. We shouldn't put a bill on the floor that says, hey, this is non-binding. But just so you know, this is not something that we're going to welcome into the discussions. I think that that commentary could have been made uh, behind the scenes if that's how they felt. If all Republicans felt that a carbon tax was completely out of bounds, they could have shared that with their Democratic counterparts without having a show vote. So I think what you've done now is you've painted yourselves in a corner and basically held Republicans who might want to vote for a comprehensive solution in the future. You've tied their hands politically because now if they vote for anything that in any way, shape or form includes a carbon tax, even if that carbon tax saves money, by the way, even if they replace a gasoline tax with a carbon tax at a rate that saves families money, they still have to go home and be told that they're hypocrites, that on one hand, they voted never to support a carbon tax. And on the other hand, they voted for a carbon tax. So I just don't like the idea of, of, of taking options off the table. And I'm always here telling Brandon, hey, you guys owed us more constructive dialogue during the Obama years. You owed us more good faith. And this, I think, in my view, was my party showing some bad faith, basically saying that we're not ready to negotiate with everything on the table. So no, I'm not impressed by it. I, I, I don't have much to defend there. Yeah, it's interesting. Craig Preston, a conservative member of the Citizens Climate Lobby, was on one of our previous episodes, and he said the Climate Solutions Caucus is really just about getting people to the table. So here you have this symbolic vote and so many Republican members of the Solutions Caucus rejecting a carbon tax. I take Craig's point that the Solutions Caucus is meant to just bring people to the table, but if the Solutions Caucus has no solutions they can agree on, then it seems to be you know, an empty effort. Brandon, would you agree? Well, just to build on that, I'm wondering for Shane, you know, I, I did read that it was a tougher vote than usual uh, for many Republicans. You know, there's stuff in the press that there's angst over the vote. You know, I'm not big into moral victories. Um, so what do you think? Is this a problem because Republicans have, have questioned the science and now there's no space? Have they boxed themselves in on this issue? Like what needs to happen to give Republicans some cover to get more than six or seven to vote alongside of this? Well, yeah, I would have said no, you know, a week ago. I didn't think they boxed themselves in. Now I think they have in a certain way. I think, you know, to be clear about Representative Kerbel, I, I don't think it's fair to criticize him. I think the fact that he started this caucus and wanted to bring people to the table, Agreed. I don't think it's fair to say that this vote is a knock on him. I think what he's doing is sort of powering through and introducing what he sees as a viable idea even after this vote. So I did want to be clear on that point. I'm not knocking both of these things uh, together. I think it's interesting that he's trying to come up with a starting point. But no, I, I think this is what boxed Republicans in, because I've long said, and I truly believe, you know, science is what it is. And, and and so you can look at that and you can sort of try to figure out time frames and cost benefit. You can do all that. So I don't think you box yourself in by saying, I don't like the clean power plan, or I don't like, you know, a carbon tax at $60 a ton or whatever. I think that's fair. And you cannot box yourself in. I think to hold a show vote that says, as a general principle, a carbon tax is terrible for the United States. That to me is boxing yourself in because you didn't leave yourself any room to maneuver. At what price is a carbon tax bad? Um, is a carbon tax bad because there's a better way? You know, I've long criticized the clean power plan saying maybe there are more market ways like a carbon tax. Well, this is off the table now. So yeah, I think the boxing in just began. And I think Democrats also need to think about like, I think there's a view uh, for many people that a carbon tax is this silver bullet and that's going to solve everything on climate change. And that's not true. There's been some good stuff that has come out um, alongside, you know, Curbelo introducing this legislation that shows that the carbon tax won't have that much of an effect on the transportation sector. And that's a huge part of greenhouse gas emissions. So this isn't just, you know, this isn't like one piece of legislation that's going to solve all of this. And that's where I think hopefully Democrats and Republicans can 
put their heads together to figure out how to deal with this issue. Yeah, and I'm not, you know, again, I'm not going to the mat on the carbon tax, but my last comment would be there. If the carbon tax is actually less than the gas tax and you would actually be saving American consumers money, don't you then think it's also weird to definitively say that you're costing American consumers money until you know what that compromise looks like? Right. I want to ask one last question on this topic because Curbelo is up for re-election and uh, his Democratic challenger is really going after him, after him saying he's not doing enough on climate change. Uh, this brings up some comments that came up in the Interchange, GTM's other podcast, where Alex Bosmoski, managing director at Republic EN, said that environmental groups are not making this any easier. They're basically siding with Democrats because they've been pulled to the, to the left side of the political spectrum, and they're trying to vote out Republicans that are sympathetic to climate action, which he says will you know, not ultimately get lasting solutions because you need your climate action to have buy-in from both sides. So do you think that some environmental groups could be shooting themselves in the foot for a long-range solution in trying to vote Republicans out and take control of the House instead of strategically supporting members of both parties who are sympathetic to their cause? Well, look, I'm happy that Congressman Curbelo uh, has introduced this legislation. And we need, Shane and I agree that Ultimately, for something to be durable, it has to be bipartisan. And we're going to need Republicans on this issue. But when it comes to control of the House, this is a sensitive time because we don't have a functioning House of Representatives. And who is the Speaker of the House right now is so critical because the Republicans like aren't doing oversight on things like Russia that are super critical to our democracy. And this rule that they've sort of adopted, the informal rule called the Hastert rule, where you have to have a majority of the majority, you know, under that sort of system, you could have 45% of the Republicans support something on climate, 45% of the Democrats, and it would never get to the floor. And so right now, you know, climate change is my top issue. I think it's the most important issue to, to, to mankind. But in November of 2018, for American democracy, I think the most important issue is Democratic control of the House. Yeah, okay. So clearly I disagree with your point about November. But what I will say is the Hastert rule, as you said, is not a formal rule. I think it's kind of a stupid concept, a stupid idea, because you have the ability now for you know a group like the Freedom Caucus to, to hold the rest of the, uh, the Republican House hostage. But I do think a lot of what uh, Democrats are doing on some of the issues you mentioned will uh, keep the House firmly in Republican hands. And so I'm very grateful to, to all the efforts on some of these some of these non-energy related issues. I'll just add one last thing that a Republican pollster was quoted in Axios saying that Republican voters don't seem to penalize their lawmakers so much for acknowledging climate change, which is an interesting perspective, um, given that President Trump has come out mocking climate action. Uh, this seems to be some issue that, according to some polls, moderate Republicans uh, are fairly safe discussing. So if that poll proves true, maybe Curbelo will have some luck in building some momentum in next section if he's reelected. Maybe we'll have a different conversation. One of the struggles has been with all voters making this a priority, whether Democrat or Republican. That's why I'm really interested to talk to our millennial guests today, because millennials need to make this a priority. Otherwise, we're doomed. Well, we're going to millennials next. <laughs> So we've all heard about millennials, that selfie-taking generation with their restaurant reviews and their endless travel and their preference for organic coffee and craft beer. And then there are the millennial causes. Shane is already smiling. You're a millennial, don't you forget. The millennials, a group that is generally defined as 20 to 35, give or take a year, uh, is a diverse group 
but studies show that American millennials are generally an idealistic and altruistic generation, and they're increasingly turning their interests into activism. The latest report from the Millennial Impact Project, an annual survey on young people's involvement in cause work, found that millennials' engagement in social issues increased and intensified from 2016 to 2017. Climate change ranked in that survey as one of the top five issues millennials care most about. To have this conversation, we're joined by Benji Bakker, a 20-year-old student from Appleton, Wisconsin, who attends the University of Washington. He's the founder and president of the American Conservation Coalition, a forum for conservatives to engage on environment and conservation issues. And we have Lydia Avila, executive director at the PowerShift Network. She's 30 years old, and she mobilizes young people to help address climate change. She grew up in Los Angeles and spent three years working with the Sierra Club. Benji and Lydia, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So tell us a little bit more about your organizations. Lydia, let's hear from you first. Tell us about the PowerShift Network and what you're trying to achieve. Sure. Thanks again for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So the PowerShift Network is a national network of 80 organizations, um, student-led, student-focused, youth-led, youth-focused, all united by the mission to mobilize the collective power of young people to mitigate climate change and create a just, clean energy future and resilient, thriving communities for all. We're united in values that speak to equity, solidarity, bottom-up organizing, and distributed owner ownership of power, amongst others. And what we aim to do is um, unite the youth climate to make sure that it's more connected and that it's collaborating and coordinating, um, that we're not reinventing the wheel across the country, but actually sharing um, strategies and tactics and working together a lot more cohesively. Uh, we're a multi-strategy network, which means that we have organizations that are working on stopping pipelines and others that are working on training young people to run for public office. And we're also um, making sure that young people in the U.S. have a voice in international conversations regarding climate change um, and that young people have access to skill development resources, like I mentioned, trainings. So it's a broad range of um, organizations and their focus, both um, strategically and geographically. So we at the American Conservation Coalition really focus on uh, bringing youth voices in the conservative movement into environmental discussions. We're millennial-led as a team. Our average uh, age on the team is 23 years old. And we believe that conservatives need to be involved in these discussions and that conservatives need to make it a priority uh, in their platform, but also uh, be included in the discussions uh, as a movement. Uh, we think one of the reasons that the environmental movement hasn't been as successful is because it has been so partisan uh, and just one-sided. And conservatives haven't been able to get their viewpoints in there, which is the fault of both sides. And so we've been focusing on free market, limited government solutions that can really foster success within the environmental community and in, in the economy as well. We think that economic success and environmental success can go hand in hand and that conservatives need to be fostering and, and prioritizing that as an issue. Uh, we talk with a lot of young conservatives across the country who feel left behind by the Republican Party on this issue. Uh, and so they're really excited about the work that we do. Uh, so we focus on three main areas. We're on over 65 campuses nationwide. Uh, we work with uh, Congress to make sure that pro-environmental legislation is pushed forth and prioritized by members of Congress uh, who lean on the Republican side, but it's very bipartisan. And then we also focus on uh, midterms and helping candidates strategize their messaging on these issues and have an opportunity to 
prioritize this as a Republican, which isn't always uh, the case uh, with Republican candidates. So we're a bipartisan organization, but we focus on the conservative movement because the conservative movement doesn't have a voice on these issues outside of the ACC. And we believe that having conservative voices in the discussion is better for the country as well as better for the environmental discussion. Great. So as you both may know, there was a bill introduced just today by Carlos Curbelo uh, proposing a carbon tax. He has led a group, the Climate Solutions Caucus, which has been criticized for not doing enough with several members voting against acting on climate change. What do you guys make of that? Benji, let's go to you first and then hear from Lydia. Uh, what do you think of Curbelo's proposal released just this week? It's amazing to see more Republicans speaking out on this issue. And, you know, with over 40 members, uh, 40 Republican members in the Climate Solutions Caucus, it proves that Republicans are really wanting to get their uh, viewpoints in these discussions more often. Uh, that being said, uh, this bill uh, is something that I think conservatives are going to have a hard time getting behind. And as an organization, we stay out of the carbon tax discussion because we think it's very polarizing and that both sides really have a tough time coming together on that and that it's just a waste of time potentially uh, if, if it's not done the right way. And so an example of this is in Washington state, uh, conservatives in Washington state tried to pass a carbon tax measure that was revenue neutral and it failed because the Democrats wouldn't get on board because they weren't uh, for where the money was to go. And so that kind of showed that this issue is, is, has many dynamics to it that are really difficult. And so we're focused on, on an organizational level on other issues that can be more uh, tangible and easier to obtain uh, through business interaction and other uh, legislation on a national and state level. So we're not endorsing nor uh, opposing this bill, but I will say uh, that it's really exciting to see more Republicans taking a step forward on climate issues, no matter what the uh, solution is. Uh, I also think in this point in time, it's not going to be feasible with a lot of Republicans leading on attacks. I think that that's a tough thing to sell to conservatives, uh, no matter what the effect is on the economy or um, what the effect is on the environment. Taxes are just something that conservatives really don't like. And I think this conversation will mold and evolve as the years go along. But I think that there are more appropriate measures that can be taken in the next couple of years that are easier to obtain. Um, and I think that it's going to be tough to see this pass through. But again, I think it's a really good opportunity to see that Republicans are sticking their heads out there and saying, we want action now. Uh, and I think that that's really inspiring. Lydia, what do you make of it? Yeah, I think that Benji took some of the words definitely out of my mouth in terms of this being a very complicated, um, multifaceted issue. There is not one way to do a carbon tax. Um, there's people in our network that are for it um, and are like for the carbon taxes and market mechanisms. And there's actually folks in our network who are opposed to it, um, largely for some of the reasons that Benji alluded to, um, where the revenue from these taxes are going. Um, it's not a network similar to Benji's organization. It is not a network wide priority for us at this moment, but not something that we're bottom line opposed to. Um, I think that, um, we need like our generally our approach to solutions is deep and systematic. We want to see, um, solutions that are going to benefit communities that have been the dumping grounds of a fossil face based, fossil fuel based economy and energy extraction for um, decades and um, that these uh, community-based solutions are benefiting these individuals and or and folks that have been, like I said, um, kind of at the front lines of climate pollution um, and climate catastrophes for so many years. Um, and 
uh, for the most part, we haven't seen a carbon tax that does that, um, that makes up for that, if you will. Um, and so although to answer your question more directly, I think although that it's um, good to see that um, the Republican Party is wanting to do something, um, I think that taking a harder look at solutions and whether or not they're actually addressing um, um, the inequity that we see across um, in the in the climate change um, arena is equally important. So, Lydia, this is Shane. Um, we just had this conversation in a small way in the previous segment, and I tend to agree with Benji that for any climate solution to be viable, um, it has to have buy-in from both parties. And so I guess my question to you would be, I noticed that when you talked about uh, power shift, you never mentioned liberals or Democrats. You talked more about policy and organizing and grassroots efforts and, and what you're doing on different campuses. So I guess the question I wanted to pose to you point blank was, when you look at mobilizing through your network, are you guys supporting Democrats who share your point of view, or are you supporting anyone who's for a climate solution, regardless of, of what their political uh, disposition is? That's a great question. <laughs> so um, we don't believe in having permanent friends or permanent enemies if you will. Um, so we are a nonpartisan organization and we have, like I've mentioned at the beginning, we have a set of principles that we organize by. Um, and if you are um, kind of adhe adhering to those principles and acting in alignment with those principles, uh, we'll work with you. Um, if you have to share the same values that we share. And for the most part though, our strategy does involve looking at kind of who are our low hanging fruit, if you will, who are the young people who are either uh, passive allies or um, neutral on this and on this issue, and how can we get them to be active allies? How can we get them to take action? Um, and so, there, you know, and I think that that there does tend to be um, a skew towards progressive um, individuals in that sense, um, but we're not drawing party lines. So this is Brandon. I I'm from a tiny generation called Generation X. <laughs> There's not very many of us, but I think all of us here can agree that the baby boomers have really left us in a jam. Uh, and so it's really going to affect both you, all of you, the millennials, more than anybody else and your children. Um, and so I'm wondering, I saw this activism coming out of Parkland. I was very excited. Um, I'm very hopeful for the millennials because there's so many of you. You have the power to do something about this and change things. So to Benji and Lydia, why should I be hopeful? Can can your generation make this a priority, make climate change a priority? And can we find common ground amongst conservatives and liberals to solve this together? Yes, yeah, so I'll jump in there. And I think that the general consensus is that the left cares more about this issue than the right. And I think that I can dispel that notion, which I think provides hope for the future and that both sides of young people are invested in this issue. I mean, there's polling that shows up to 80 and 90% of young conservatives believe that climate change is real and that we need action. Uh, an even higher percent believe that we just need action on the environment in general, um, even if they're skeptical of climate change. And so I think that that shows that both sides of young leaders are willing to step up on this issue. And so I deal with young conservatives and young liberals every single day, and they are very uh, engaged and excited and motivated behind environmental reforms. And there's a lot more common ground, especially on this issue, than on others. And I think that if there's a way to bridge the gap in America, it's going to be on environmental policy, and it's going to take both sides to come to agreement on things, sometimes when they don't want to. 
is going to take. Um, you know, the left being more willing to talk about business in this in these discussions, and the right being more willing to talk about the government's role and how that plays. So I think that that's going to need to happen, but I think our generation is ready to do it. And I think you see that with a lot of young members in Congress, Elise Stefanik, Mike Gallagher, Will Hurd. Those members have been ready to call out Trump. They've been um, you know, ready to applaud him when he needs it, but they've also been ready to tackle climate change and other environmental issues. And they are young Republicans uh, doing things that the older generations haven't been doing. Um, on these issues. So I do think that there's a lot of hope to be had. And I think that the fact that our organization as a conservative environmental organization can grow so quickly, it dispels a lot of those notions that people have about young conservatives or the young generations in general, that they're not motivated, that they're lazy. We've been able to do so much work uh, crossing party lines on this issue that other groups haven't been able to do in the past with other generations. And I think that that's pretty exciting. Lydia, what do you think? What do you make of that? Um, yeah, I have to agree. I think that, I mean, there's a reason that I do this work, right? Um, I choose to work with the age group that I do because they do give me so much hope. Um, and there are, I think, a couple of things about this generation. One is that we are not afraid to call call it call it out for what it is. Um, I think that we've um, seen kind of an, a surge um, in the past couple of years in particular of um, people taking to social media to be a lot, um, to express their political beliefs and um, a surge in political activity. And a lot of that is coming from the millennial generation. Um, and it's definitely true for, for young people that, um, you know, we're more, we feel a lot more empowered maybe than the, the previous generation, um, a lot more urgency around what's going on around us um, to speak up and do something about it. And um, and as Benji said, it, this, the, the data shows that they care, right? Um, so for us at the PowerShift Network, it's about showing young people specifically how they can make a difference. Um, so some folks are going to be passionate about politics and they want to hold elected officials accountable, um, like asking them to take the no fossil fuel money pledge, not take um, contributions from the fossil fuel industry, or others are going to be um, maybe getting working on their campus to get their campus to divest from fossil fuels or um, some young people are literally fighting oil companies in court. And, you know, there's a variety of ways for folks to plug in. And I think it's really just about finding um, a, a their interest um, and plugging them into that and showing them how they can have an impact. I recently checked in with the Sunrise Movement, and they're an organization of young people working to stop climate change and create jobs in the process. They're actually planning a week of demonstrations and actions in August. But I was hearing from them that some of their members are struggling to be heard when they approach people in positions of power. They referenced a case where an 18-year-old Sunrise Movement member in Pennsylvania confronted a Republican nominee for Governor Scott Wagner at a town hall and asked why he took fossil fuel money. And he, in response, called her young and naive. So have you guys have you guys encountered this where you or some of your members get into a room and your voice is not being heard by the people currently in power? Benji, what do you say as a, you know, on the younger end of the spectrum here? Do you ever run into that? Yeah, I think that there are certain people on both sides of the aisle that aren't willing to, to hear people out, especially in older generations. I mean, the candidate that you were talking about from what I could tell was probably in his 60s and um, yeah, that's frustrating. But I also think that within our generation, that's not the case. Uh, I think, you know, like people like Lydia and I can can talk about these issues in a very um, candid way and, and talk about it 
even despite our probably massive disagreements. And so I think that it's changing. Um, an example I'll show, I was speaking at Berkeley um, about these, about climate change and about the environment. And when they said that conservatives were going to be talking about those, those issues on the next panel, half the room stood up and left. And so I think that there's, you know, there's the, there's the unfortunate bias on both sides that is frustrating, but I don't think that it's going to last um, for far too long. I think that it's kind of something that's dying out um, with the older generations that are a little bit less likely to listen to that opposing side on this issue. Um, but I do think that there are a lot of voices that need to uh, be a lot more tolerant. And I think that there are a lot of young leaders who are pressing for that and they're um, pushing for it on an everyday scale, no matter what they're doing. I mean, I know some of the biggest conservative leaders on the right who constantly talk uh, to the left and vice versa. A lot of the conservative groups on campus partner with liberal groups on different uh, philanthropic projects. And so there is a lot of that going on. And so I think, again, as younger generations get more into office, that will change. For the time being, I think what's important is talking to people of opposing viewpoints who are a little bit less tolerant and talking to them in their language. So instead of going up and saying, you know, you kind of suck for not uh, embracing climate change and why don't you do this, have a better approach in terms of trying to reach them. Lydia, do you agree with that, that it is about getting uh, using the language of the person you're talking to? Or is it more about sticking to your guns and making the point you want to make no matter who you're talking to and and get your message across, like the no fossil fuel pledge? I mean, I guess first I'll just say that the that that, that definitely happens. Um, so it's de it's not an anomaly um, by any means um, that young people are dismissed. Um, and I think that the role of young people is to hold our hold folks feet to the fire and and really ask for what we want um, because there are plenty of folks out there willing to compromise and I don't think that young people should be one of them especially since we have the most at stake the power shift network looks at approaches and views the climate movement as a social justice movement and social justice movements across history um, over the course of time have by and large been led and been um, been uh, kind of largely composed of young people. So you look at the anti-war movement, um, you look at um, the civil rights movement, MLK was in his mid twenties. Uh, a lot of people don't realize uh, when, uh, when he took, when he, when he kind of rose in popularity, um, the folks that did the lunch counter sit-ins were 18, 19 years old, freshmen and sophomores in, in college um, during the civil rights movement. So I think this is the thing that I like to remind people like this gubernatorial candidate and others um, that there is a reason to listen to young people and to believe that the ideas that they have and the, the opinions that they hold are worth listening to. One thing that I've long lamented, and I, and I suspect you guys may both disagree with me or, or, or you may either or both of you agree, but you know, I heard Benji talking about language and you know, we talked about someone saying, you know, why won't you agree to the no fossil fuel pledge? One of the things that I found interesting, and we saw this on Twitter after the um, the vote last week about whether or not there should be a carbon tax that said, hey, four Republicans from the Climate Solutions Caucus voted against this. Therefore, the Climate Solutions Caucus should disband. And I think that sort of black and white reasoning is a huge problem. One, in my view, can say climate is an issue that we should address and not necessarily equate that to taking a no fossil fuel pledge. Like I would argue that, you know, no fossil fuels is not feasible. So any, you know, approach that relies on that, to me, then is not feasible at all. 
a lot of room for disagreement there. But I just wonder, do you guys think that sometimes the black and white rhetoric, i.e., this is my proposed solution and you either adopt it or you're wrong, do you think that removes some of the space for, for disagreement? I think it was stupid to have a vote on that bill, but I don't think voting against a carbon tax means that you're unwilling to address climate. It might just mean that you're unwilling to address climate through a carbon tax. Yeah, I actually think that you're spot on there. And I think that that's been a huge fault of the environmental movement is that if if it's not one person's way then or one group's way or one bill or whatever it is, then the person doesn't care about the environment. Or a good example is the League of Conservation Voters scorecard, which votes Republicans so low. And I have people coming up to me all the time. How can you say that, you know, Representative Blank cares about the environment when they get 20 percent on the League of Conservation Voters scorecard? And I say, they vote for things that they believe in and don't believe in just because they vote yes or no on a bill doesn't mean that they don't care about the environment. They may just not like that approach. And it's up to them to create a new approach, which is a whole different issue. But I think that there's a huge fault in saying that because someone doesn't support a carbon tax or because someone supports fossil fuels or because, uh, you know, of another uh, kind of generalization that they don't care about the environment. There are so many approaches that people can take to help out the environment and I think that alienating people because they don't support something or do support something is really dangerous. And I also agree that no fossil fuels is not plausible and that it doesn't need to happen for the environment to be helped. Um, you know, there are so many ways to, to help the environment past eliminating fossil fuels. And I think that, you know, as an environmental movement, the movement has to become more open to those different ideals. And even though they might disagree, you know, people might disagree with my approach, which is that business can lead. And that, you know, emissions can be reduced through technology and innovation. That's my approach. And people can disagree with that. But that doesn't mean that I don't care about the environment. I mean, I care about the environment more than anyone that I think I know. And so I think that that's something that is lost in a lot of these discussions, not just in the environmental movement, but beyond. And I think that there's a lot of improvement for that dialogue to change. Otherwise, nothing is going to change if everyone's just painting each other in those in those uh, broad generalizations. So, Benji, I'm very curious, what does a young conservative like you support? You talked about different approaches. What what are you for? What, what do you think is the right way to tackle climate change? Yeah, I think promoting business in this is the best way. There are 150 companies that have uh, pledged to go 100% renewable by 2030, and these are big companies. These aren't just you know mom and pop shops. These are some of the biggest companies in the world. I think that's the future because they're finding out that it's more cost effective, and it's better for PR and it's better for the environment at all at the same time. And I think that that's really where it's going to come from. People are always going to try to skirt around a punishment or a tax or something like that, but they are going to do things if they're incentivized to do the right thing. So I think that that's key. And I think innovation and technology is the other key, you know, allowing clean energy to keep improving so that it becomes more cheap and more effective and on a larger scale uh, can cover more ground in the energy sector. I mean, right now it's such a small percentage, even with subsidies, that doesn't mean it always has to be that way. Technology and innovation will change that. We have to allow technology and innovation to adapt. And I think one of the key things that we support as an organization is an all of the above energy approach that puts all the different energy sectors on a level playing field. That means opposing Trump's bailout of the coal industry, but it also uh, opposes subsidies for oil, solar, and wind which all get a lot of subsidies from the government. So it's that approach that I think is the future. And I think that most Americans can get behind, which is what I think is going to be the most beneficial. And then we also focus on a lot of conservation opportunities. Lydia, what do you think? Uh, is 
tackling the business side uh, and then the technology piece enough to act on climate change. What do you think? Do we need bolder, bigger systems level change here? Definitely. Um, the Power Shift Network, like I said, we have 80 organizations, multi-strategy. Um, each, each of these 80 organizations have their own mission in the way that they attack the problem. Um, but by and large, based on our values and um, kind of our guiding principles, we believe in community-owned renewable clean energy. Um, so that means bringing the um, ownership and control of, of folks' energy future back into the community. And, you know, that, that benefits um, folks in a number of ways. And I can, you know, we can talk about um, solar panels on roof and net metering. And we can talk about green, the, the fact that renewable clean energy jobs, uh, you know, produce five times as many jobs as the fossil fuel industry. And there's so many benefits to um, engaging people back into their um, energy systems um, and putting the community back in the center of this. So generally, those are the kinds of solutions that the PowerShift Network um, supports. And and to Benji's comment about leveling the playing field, you know, that this essentially, I mean, a big part of the no fossil fuel money pledge, as an example, is exactly that. Like that is, you know, when you have fossil fuel companies able to give millions of dollars in, in, in contributions to campaigns, that is not an even playing field. When uh, oil companies get tax breaks um, in the billions, that is not an even playing field, right? So the, yes, a lot of Lydia. this is fine. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm just like, you're on a roll. I'm just so happy to hear a young person like sound so articulate about this. Yeah, the fact of the matter is that there is there is not an even playing field right now. Um, so if we could even start from that, that would be a win, right? Um, but that's not the case. So I guess I'll just leave it at that for now. <laughs> Lydia, is your group okay with fossil fuels in the future? Do you see that being part of the energy mix? Or are you really trying to work toward a fossil fuel free future? Absolutely no room for fossil fuels in the future. If we actually want to stay below 1.5 degrees, um, then there's no way. Every scientific model I've seen does not allow for that, uh, for fossil fuels to be part of the future. The scale of time is can be argued. Uh, but anybody that says that fossil fuels can continue to be a part of our future indefinitely, I think just has a, is working off of a different scientific model or something. I don't really know where folks get that from. And it is possible. There's many models that show how uh, we can get off of fossil fuels over the next 30, 40, 50, 100 years for sure. Um, it just depends on how ambitious we want to be as a country and how many things we're able and willing to do over the next five to 10 years. So I, I should let you know, this is Shane, that Brandon's cheering for you. He, he was cheering loudly, as you know, before. Now he's cheering quietly. But nonetheless, his support is still fully there. I, I have to challenge this. I just had this conversation uh, with someone last week, and I and the fossil fuel thing really gets me because what I think about is, you know, scientific models notwithstanding, I will acknowledge right now I don't understand them. Um, what I will say is that incremental progress is better than no progress. And so, you know, what I was just saying to Brandon earlier today was, in 2009, we had the carbon tax debate. I realize that's not what you're talking about. That was cap and trade. That wasn't, you know, phasing out of fossil fuels. But the point is, there was no agreement on it. And then came the Clean Power Plan. And then the courts held up the Clean Power Plan. And now it's 2018. So it's nine years later. And we're in a zero different position than we were nine years earlier, outside of some of the technological innovation that, that Benji hit on. But I guess my point is, if 50% of the electorate or 50% of the electeds, however you want to view it, 
will never agree that phasing out fossil fuels on any sort of time frame is realistic. Are we hampering our own goals by setting a target that is definitively unachievable? I mean, does it make sense to take baby steps now, like some of the things that Benji articulated, and see where the future takes us? Or is the no fossil fuel thing, is that is that sort of a line in the sand that you've drawn? And any solution that doesn't lead there is not going to be viable in your view? I think what you said at the beginning um, is really what I'm basing this on. Um, we have to base this on something. Like if we are serious about about addressing climate change, I don't see how we can base this anything except on the science, carbon and degrees Celsius. Like that, I just don't see how anything else can be taken seriously. Um, so folks really have to understand the science and we have to be basing it on the science. That being said, you know, I think that incremental changes, depending on what it is, can be helpful. However, I will say that the risk that we run by settling for incremental changes that are not that are not uh, up to par, if you will, is that we're reinforcing models of inequity and and um, and frankly um, injustice um, that we've already seen for decades, right? So we our fossil fuel in so just as a quick example, right? Our fossil fuel industry in this in this country is based on the extraction of our land and and it's based on the backs of. Uh, of people. So you have coal miners with black lung disease. That is a byproduct of a fossil fuel extractive industry, right? So, um, you know, that's kind of one extreme example. But my point is that solutions, quote unquote, that are not um, equitable, just, well examined, and think 100, 500, 1000 years into the future have the potential of also falling into that kind of trap where we're reinforcing a problem or making it worse, or it's not a, what we like to call a true solution. Right. So, again, incremental changes, fine, but they have to be um, something that's actually moving us towards towards a permanent solution. Lydia, can you run for office? I'd like to help you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Very flattering. (laughs) Benji, if elected uh, Republicans continue to deny the science of climate change, will that affect young conservative support for Republicans? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think when we talk to top Republican officials, that's something that we mention to them constantly, that Republicans need to start leading on these issues. Otherwise, they're going to lose youth support. And there's a reason why young people don't support the Republican Party um, as an overall movement. And it's because they don't lead on the issues that young people care about as much as they should. And so with our organization, even though we think that a lot of these representatives do care and do want to lead, they need to make it a priority. um, And that's something that we're working towards. I also think that being skeptical or coming out and saying that the environment's fine and that we should just drill, baby, drill, and, you know, nothing matters and the environment is going to be totally fine no matter what we do. I think those comments are really damaging to the conservative movement, but also to the country as a whole and environmental reforms. But I will say that those voices are less and less. Like, I don't think that the majority of Republicans in leadership refute climate change. In fact, a lot of the ones that I talked to that you think are some of the most far-right members in Congress believe in this. They just don't prioritize it, which they need to. And so I think that that's something that, as a country, we just need to make it a priority for these people. But if they don't make it a priority, young people will continue to leave the party, and that is a danger for the party uh, and something that they need to realize. The other thing, the last point I want to make, is that you don't have to tackle climate change 
by just talking about climate change as a general topic. You can tackle climate change by talking about clean energy and reducing emissions and having businesses lead and technology. I mean, a lot of this stuff has happened without climate change reforms, right? Like the Tesla and the Prius, none of that came from legislation. That came from innovation and technology. So I think that a lot of people who think that we're just going down the, the tunnel of despair because there's no climate change res, res, uh, legislation, they're wrong because there are so many things going on in this country that are helping climate change without having some you know, climate change focus in Congress. And I think that even focusing on clean energy without talking about climate change, which every Republican is willing to do, is a step in the right direction. And I think that that's really important uh, to see. I think a lot of people would agree that's a step in the right direction. But at the end of the day, if you can't say it, you can't act on it in a meaningful enough way. And there certainly are a number of lawmakers who don't use those terms. They're politically toxic for a lot of different reasons, and maybe they just don't believe the science, period. So it is definitely a controversial element there. I know a lot of people are frustrated with Congress because they do believe that they have the authority, um, as Shane would argue, you know, Congress has to take action on this. Otherwise, there probably wouldn't be enough done, and you risk passing measures that are not legally sustainable. But I didn't agree, and we've talked about this on past shows, that you have to call it by the name that other people want you to call it by. I think what Benji hit on was clean energy is really popular, really good for the economy. Conservatives love it because there's an element of control there as well. Um, so I, I just want to clarify that we have talked about that on past episodes, but I don't think you need to have 218 Republicans crowing about climate change to, to have uh, a meaningful reform. Completely agree. I think the problem there is that the science dictates clean energy, which we think of as the electricity sector, isn't enough and that you need other sectors of the economy, agriculture, transportation to change as well, and that clean energy is just not enough on its own. But that technology is changing that. You know, I think like you look at the the transportation industry or even the ag industry, a lot of those new technologies are reducing emissions. And I think that if you're going to have meaningful climate change related reforms, you can't just bill it as climate change to these people. There are so many other ways to bill it and talk about it and get meaningful reforms without just hammering down climate change. And I think that those steps are more important, um, arguably, than than just trying to get everyone on board with the same message that a lot of people are skeptical of. But that doesn't mean they're not willing to take action in a different form. Lydia, you know, we need conservatives uh, to join us on this issue. So that's uh, part of our show and, and why I'm excited to talk to Shane and people like Benji. Uh, but one of the things I see as a challenge to solving climate change is uh, it's a lot of white guys on the coasts um, you know, that are focused on this. You're on the front lines of expanding um, interest in this issue to you know, communities of color and such. What, what are you seeing out there um, uh, in your work that gives reason for hope on that? Oh my gosh, so many reasons for hope. Um, first of all, um, the reason, um, you know, one of the reasons, uh, communities of color, um, are often highlighted and kind of, um, talked about as being so important to this work, um, is, uh, because communities of color are at the front lines of climate change for the most part. So if you're looking at the effects of climate catastrophes, um, communities of color are hit the hardest. Um, have the hardest time usually bouncing back. Um, you're when you're looking at the placement of like coal plants across the country, oil refineries, et cetera, they tend to be in communities of color and low income communities. Um, and I say first and foremost, I'll say that these there's a lot of communities like this, frontlines communities 
who are mobilizing and have been mobilizing for decades, um, who've been working on this since the 80s. Um, and so I would not, I would be remiss and I would never dare to take credit for any of that. Um, the Power Shift Network is um, hoping to support and reinforce and kind of center that work as much as possible. Um, but these communities have been taking matters into their own hands um, and, um, you know, working on this issue for a long time. Um, and they see the urgency because every time there is, like I said, a climate catastrophe, their communities are the ones suffering. Benji and Shane are telling us that, you know, we need to use the right language uh, on this issue. Is there a different language that you're using in those communities versus like innovation, um, you know, clean energy? What what are you using that works? I think um and that engaging um, communities of color in the mainstream conversations um, is important because they have the firsthand experience of what um, of what it is to live in communities where they're, it's like ground zero for fossil fuel extraction and climate change. Um, and so they're going to have the most information, um, firsthand lived experiences of what just solutions look like. And to your question, it's about um, making the connections between what they're experiencing and the economic and political circumstances that have led to their situation. You know, there is a history of um, uh, systematic racism that has led to um, an oil extraction refinery place, like being in the middle of a immigrant Mexican community in Southern California. You know, and I can give many examples like that around the country. So um, I think that it's about making those connections um, and giving people, like I had said at the very beginning, a way to take action. To what you just said, then we'll sort of end it on this note. I want to talk about flipping the house. Lydia, do you think that because incremental change is, you know, not enough, that, you know, people who believe in climate action need to support the lawmakers that are willing to take action now. And today that tends to be Democrats. So is there a push to say only support those that are willing to do the most and perhaps even at the risk of voting out some Republicans who are sympathetic to the cause, but, you know, like Curbelo putting, you know, proposals forward, but um, not maybe showing the goods yet for a lot of different reasons. Uh, But just given where we're at politically today, what do you do when it comes to voting in the fall? I think it's very, I think groups like Sunrise are a great example of really holding, um, you know, elected officials and candidates feet to the fire. I think it's absolutely important to vote for the people who are, um, you know, who are not just um, talking the talk, but walking the walk um, and are willing to put this at the top of their agenda because we've had too many folks come through office that have thrown us a bone, if you will, in the climate movement, environmental movement, and have maybe made it bullet number 10 out of of, uh, 20 in their talking points. Um, And then when it actually comes to being in office, it falls flat or it doesn't um, actually come to fruition. Keeping uh, not only, you know, getting out and actually voting for the people that represent your interests, but actually holding folks' feet to the fire after the fact um, and being very clear that if um, they are not um, acting in our best interest, um, that they will be voted out. I think that's uh, number one. Benji, what do you think? Do you think this fall there's a risk that in with a lot of momentum around climate action, um, you could risk losing some Republicans who are sympathetic to acting on climate, and then you lose the possibility of getting a bipartisan solution at the end of the day? Is that something you're thinking about? I'd actually argue, and this is probably uh, fairly controversial, but I'd argue that in the past, 10 years, the Republican Party and conservatives have tried to do more than liberals on this issue. 
Um, and that's not saying very much. I'm not, that's not a high bar. Uh, but I would, I would argue that it's just liberals that are making this a priority. I think that there are, there are a lot of conservatives that are pushing these types of reforms, and that number is growing. And we need bipartisan reforms. We need conservative reforms. We need um, you know, conservatives to be involved. And I think that that's, that cannot get lost in all of this. And I think you know, going forward, the best opportunity for us to have real action on climate, environmental, and conservation energy issues is to have conservatives be a part of that process. And I don't think that the problem is the legislators themselves. I think it's the um, a lot of times it's the voters in the districts. It's too often that I hear from legislators that the only reason they aren't leading on these issues is because they don't hear from their constituents. They have someone from the Sierra Club call or some someone from the League of Conservation Voters call, but they don't have one of their voting, um, you know, members of their district. And that's one thing that we're trying to really mobilize is having those voters from either side um, call up and, and or meet in their office and make this a priority. I think it's up to us to make it a priority. And I think both parties will lead on it. I think that it's ignorant to assume that it's just going to be the left that takes care of this issue. And I think that it's conservatives that are proving that they are ready to take on this mantle. It's just a matter of having a different approach. And I think that we need to understand that both sides are going to have a different approach on it and that both sides are ready to lead on it, especially as the generations become, uh, as the younger generations become older. So I'm excited about that. And I think that we should be rewarding anybody that we feel is doing a good job on the environment and keep an open mind that it's not just one party that wants to lead on the environment, especially if it's just because of a disagreement over a certain type of legislation. Well, you both made some really incredible points in this conversation. We will have to leave it there and would love to stay in touch and continue the conversation as we continue toward midterms and beyond. So thank you both again so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, no worries. And I think that this conversation proved that like, even though we disagreed on a lot of the different points throughout, we had a lot of common ground. And that's the reason why we're both in this fight. And I think the future is, uh, is with a lot of common ground on this issue. And I'm pretty excited about it. Any final words, Lydia? Young people are what's going to save us. <laughs> well, great. Thank you guys again. And yeah, having these types of conversations is exactly what we're trying to do with this podcast. So really appreciate it. And now we're going to end with our final segment, If You Can't Say Something Nice, where we have each of our co-hosts, Republican and Democrat, say something they found redeeming about the opposing political party. Shane, what do you got? So I'm going to cop out here. I've got nothing. I'm going to claim credit for the two that I did last time, but it's not because I'm angry or upset with my uh, Democratic colleague. It's because my wife and I just celebrated our seventh anniversary. I've been phones down for the last four days and paid absolutely no attention to the news. So I'm just pretty unaware other than the things that we studied up for for this particular episode. All right. You get a freebie on that one. And congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> congratulations, Shane. Thank you. I am giving my shout out this week to a couple of prominent Republicans who started a think tank on climate change. So George David Banks, who was President Trump's international energy advisor, is teaming up with a couple of other Republicans to advance climate policies uh, aimed at securing conservative support. So they started a think tank called the Center for Energy Security, conservative Republicans uh, getting in the game on this issue. That's awesome. I didn't know about that. Cool. Well, we'll end it there for now. Uh, our millennials were really great. I'm so glad to have them on as a fellow millennial. I do feel hopeful that our 
that this generation is active, period, and I think that's a really exciting thing. Um, and maybe we'll get over some of the partisan split that has just held up solutions on climate and many other issues. Thank you, as always, for listening. This is, again, Political Climate. You can find us on Twitter at poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate. We'll be back again soon with another episode. Thanks again. Thanks again.